The element of light is older than time. It's the oldest medium that there is, and perhaps the only element that could even rival light is space, the void. But light is what fills space, and it's existed since before the earth, before thought, well before us and our solar system. Photons have survived every stage of the universe, and in many ways light is the only element that is external, internal, and eternal, which we're going to talk about in this video. Because of this, it's arguably the most powerful medium to use, and especially when it's being used by these masters that we're going to discuss in this video, as it directs us fairly immediately back to the source of who we are when we experience it. Light responds to consciousness, and it behaves differently as it's viewed. This was discovered in the famous double slit experiment, which if you don't know about, definitely check that out. I will leave a link down below for a simple video to watch about it. It's transmitted externally through our perception of the spectrum of light through our eyes and optics, but it's also mysteriously internal. It carves out scenes in our minds, um, even when our eyes are closed and there's no light actually entering our, our eyes, as in a dream, especially a lucid dream that has nothing to do with memory. It seems to come from within a person sometimes and radiate outside of them, and that's when we refer to somebody as somebody who glows from within. And many times people describe the light in someone's eyes as a window into their inner being or their inner soul somehow. Light activates our cells to create vitamin D, uh, which is necessary for a large percentage of our body's most important functions. And it activates the cells and plants to conduct the process of photosynthesis. Therefore, it's safe to say, since it's a direct source of food for us and plants and creatures of all kinds, it's the source of life. In our own solar system, the sun is the most important source of light, of course. And each day as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, we feel the passage of our days through the activation of our sleep-wake cycles governed by the light and the radiation of the sun. The concept of the Son of God comes from the idea that the sun, or our sun, is the offspring of a greater, more eternal source of light. All monotheistic religions stem from this concept in one way or another, despite various translations and interpretations over the thousands of years getting kind of farther and farther away from this um, root system of spirituality of the cosmos. In art and design, light is used either as a means to reveal another thing through our vision, as a carving tool, or as a medium itself. In film and photography, photographers and DPs use and corral light to sculpt their subjects, to determine the mood and tone of a still or moving image, to tell you as the audience what to focus on and what should recede into the shadows. Architects like Tadao Ando, which we're going to talk about in this video, as you probably can see by the title, use it to do the same thing with physical structures, with buildings, to carve out moments of quiet contemplation and to even evoke a sense of monastic secular worship of the element. In this episode, we're going to discuss the element of light as it relates to the work of four different world-renowned artists who have harnessed it as a medium in various ways. Artists James Terrell and Dan Flavin use it probably in the most literal ways, though very differently from each other. Um, Tadao Ando using light in architecture and Richard Learoyd using the mastery of light and optics in photography. Everything is two things, right? The very concept of light immediately and necessarily implies the concept of shadow. This is an idea that's well documented in Eastern philosophy 
And it's one of the first things that they teach you to recognize and to contemplate when you go to architecture school, at least they did for me. Pritzker Prize-winning Japanese architect Tadao Ando never formally went to architecture school himself, but instead he used experience as an education, the best education. In his early life, he visited traditional temples around Kyoto and Osaka, where he's from, and he was also interested in the works of Frank Lloyd Wright, as in the Imperial Hotel, which greatly inspired him. And he also studied books of the buildings of Le Corbusier, also known as Le Corbus. Actually, Ando was so inspired by the works of Le Corbusier, who we're going to do an entire episode on, um, that he actually named his dog after him. So next dog I have is going to be called Le Corbusier. He wanted to create an architecture through these experiences of these sort of modern international architects that were getting all kinds of attention at the time um, in the 1950s and 60s. And he wanted to do something like that that could be only done by somebody who was Japanese. So he wanted to create a kind of international architecture that could only be done by him, essentially. So in other words, he used philosophy from Japanese tradition like harmony with nature, uh, materials that sort of have a soul, because a lot of the modern materials they were using were kind of soulless. Um, things that get better with time, those those sorts of ideas were things that he incorporated into his works, um, even though in many ways they were very minimalist, just like the modern works that were popping up all over the world. But they also had a sense of, yeah, a soul, um, more so than some of the others. If you don't know, international architecture kind of just refers to uh, modern architecture at the time that didn't take into consideration any of the cultural practices or uh, techniques or traditions of the place that they were that the buildings were in they were kind of the same everywhere and that was sort of a a shift at, at a certain time to globalization the problem being you know things that we still see today as it doesn't really honor the land that it's on in a way right ondo would also often use light both directly and indirectly in his buildings um, particularly in the residences so that it would create a sort of expansive effect that was also controlled through various apertures, either on the sides or tops of walls to kind of ensure the control of the tone and mood of the entire building. Um, in other words, too much light is overwhelming, especially in Eastern traditional architecture, i.e. in Praise of Shadows, classic. Um, while not enough light can be depressing and impractical, so or too much like graphic sort of streams of light and and um, skylights can also be a little bit distracting and too harsh. So it was a kind of a balance and harmony between all of those different elements. In the documentary that's simply titled Tadao Ando, Ando says about a residential commission that he built, the house is designed so as to combine darkness and brightness with high and low ceilings in order to create the rhythm. If one lets light into architecture in many different and subtle ways, one can enjoy light watching. And that's, I think, kind of the essence of, you know, including him in this, in this episode, because the whole point is to just appreciate light because it gives us a sense of, yeah, of peace, of quietude, of um, something inner being visible outside of us. The words aren't really coming to me, but it's, these things are kind of hard to explain, honestly. It's also necessary, like I said, to discuss shadow when you discuss light because one implies the other. And Ando does just this in the same documentary when he addresses it by saying, if there are two types of comfort, namely physical and spiritual, spiritual comfort can be sought in darkness and physical comfort in light. 
but I need both kinds of comfort. I believe that darkness enriches your soul. I'm sorry that modern architecture has eliminated this aspect. And I would have to agree. Um, In 1989, Ando was commissioned to create what's known as the Church of Light, which is arguably his most famous work um, and is perfect for this episode. A chapel located in Ibaraki, Osaka Prefecture in Japan, where he, not too far from where he's from, um, it's a cross-shaped aperture that slices through a classic Andoan um, six-meter by 18-meter reinforced concrete construction. The structure, as simple as it is, perfectly demonstrates the fundamentals of Ando's work, of the importance of light and shadow, their play together, the drama between them, the tension between them, in housing the spirit also, and in a larger sense, uh, connecting anyone who is inside of it to something much greater than themselves. And it's a very poignant building that I hope to see one day in person. So moving on to James Terrell. James Terrell is probably the most literal translation of an artist working with light. Um, you've probably heard of him. You've probably seen some of his work. They're, they're all over the place. As light and perception of it is his medium of choice. Um, it also very much involves space. So I actually recall seeing his piece at the MFA in Houston when I was a kid. Um, I was probably like a teenager, actually. It's called The Light Inside. And um, it really is wild how disorienting it is because so much of our brain kind of depends on our perception of light, right? And so when there's a sort of unique and manipulated presentation of light and color, your brain gets really confused and doesn't really know where to put things. And sometimes like you'll feel like a wall is there when it's really not or vice versa. And it's really, really, yeah, disorienting is the only word that's, that I can really think of. But emotionally, it's powerful. It's like it really takes you um, outside of yourself for a moment, and it, it is very effective. So the spaces that he creates through his work with light feels like something that really does take you into another dimension and is awe-inspiring. And, um, and I would even say equally futuristic and primordial, which I think kind of accurately describes light in general. It's sort of a circle. It's timeless. In 2013, there was a year-long retrospective of Terrell's work at several museums, um, including the Guggenheim. Um, But the one at the Guggenheim actually ended up being kind of a collaboration posthumously um, between Terrell and Frank Lloyd Wright, who we've now mentioned twice in this video, so I feel like he's kind of included. Um, But Terrell used light to kind of create a piece out of each of the floors of the Guggenheim, which was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, which is pretty cool that collaborations between artists like that can still happen many years after they've passed away. In a press interview with Charlie Rose from that year, he hits almost all of the points from the beginning of this video, um, including light changing its behavior based on being observed. Um, he says that it imbues it with consciousness, and that's a great way to, to put it, and goes on to discuss that we drink it as vitamin D through the skin and calls us light eaters, which I love, um, discusses the powerful connotations of light and film, of the descriptions of near-death experiences that people have, always kind of including seeing a bright light, um, and how we have a full vision without light in our dreams, in our dream space, and sort of ponders the possibilities of this. It's a really interesting interview if you have a chance to watch it. He also describes working with light kind of more like making music, since you're not actually using your hands to mold the music in a way. 
um, you're using your hands to play an instrument. So it's kind of similar with light. So his work is to create the instrument that makes the light happen. Um, and then I would also add the space that the light is in um, is kind of like the canvas. So I'll link that interview down below if you're interested in checking it out. It's just on a random YouTube channel. So another interesting thing is that Terrell is probably one of the most famous, if not the most famous successful artist that's living on this planet at this time. Um, and yet there is a project that he's been working on since 1977, which he acquired the land in that year and then didn't get started on it until 1979. But still, it's like 50 years ago. Um, it's called Rodin Crater, and I believe it's in Arizona. It's his most ambitious work to date by far. And it kind of summons like the likes of these ancient sites that you hear about in um, Graham Hancock documentaries. <laughs> I actually don't know a ton about it. Like I tried to read about it and I was just like, I don't know. It's it sort of, I think it's a little hush hush still maybe. Um, and they just have very vague sort of um, descriptions of it on the website. But my understanding is that there's all sorts of different rooms and things that are happening and it's going to be like a whole whole otherworldly experience uh, if it ever actually gets finished. But the reason why I brought up how successful he is and how this project isn't done is is because for whatever reason, they still can't seem to find enough funding for it. And I just, I don't know how that could possibly be. I mean, of all the things that humans have built in the world, I don't know, something's, something's fishy about it. And I, I don't know what it is, can't figure it out. But in an article published in The New Yorker from February of this year, Jackson Arn writes in reference to Terrell, if James Terrell transfigures galleries, that's a great word, uh, by sculpting with light, Flavin, who we're going to talk about next, scribbles with it. So that's a great segue to start talking about Dan Flavin's work. So Flavin is actually really interesting because, well, he's one of the first artists that I ever knew about because of his uh, work at the Manil, but he's pretty hard to learn about on the internet. And I'm not really sure why there's really, I could not find any interviews with him really. I don't know really why that is because he's incredibly f famous and well-known, even though of course he's no longer in his physical body anymore, but still it's just interesting that it's really actually kind of difficult to learn about his work beyond the sort of basics. Um, but he was Part of the minimalist movement in the 1960s, he began making these sort of sculptural fluorescent situations. That was his word for it, just kind of like similar to Donald Judd's uh, specific objects. They didn't want to call them sculptures because that had a lot of connotations, especially at the time, that combined popular elements at the time. Um, and so in the same article in the New, York, New Yorker, Flavin's success was kind of chalked up to his use of candy-colored pop terse minimalism, conceptual abracadabra. Basically, um, this writer, Jackson Arn, is saying that his work was pretty basic but well-timed in its aesthetic. So Flavin combined elements of light with elements of minimalist sculpture, um, with some pieces echoing shapes and ideas from other minimalist artists like Carl Andre and Donald Judd. And in my opinion, his work looks pretty much like Carl Andre's work, just in different yeah, different mediums. So fluorescent light as an aspect of light as a medium to use in, in art is very interesting because um, it sort of has this 
connotation of being icky. And it reminds us of the the drudgery and harshness of American banality. And um, that was pervasive in office buildings, government buildings, still is, um, and schools and factories because it's a cheap source of light. And it also has that kind of buzzing sound, which I think is an interesting aspect to it. I always remember the the buzzing of it. Uh, I can really, it's like very loud to me whenever I, I'm around fluorescent lights. The light that radiates from fluorescent bulbs when placed above our heads feels really heavy and beating and harsh and unflattering. Um, and yet somehow Flavin's work, when you when you bring it down to earth, when you bring it down to like where we can see it on our own level, it really does have a totally different effect. And it's pretty majestic, um, whimsical, I would even go as far as to say. And it really had to do with um, sort of taking a, an, an industrial product of light um, and using it to kind of summon that same energy that just light has, like light alone, uh, which is that sense of wonder and that sense of joy and um, yeah, that sense of source energy. The last artist we're going to talk about is Richard Learoyd, and he is a photographer that uses light and old photography techniques to create one-of-a-kind images on a very large scale. Um, I feel lucky that I actually got to hang out with Richard recently and learn a lot from him. What's up, Richard? If you're watching this, you're the best. We went to the Hoover Dam together. He taught me a lot. Um, he's great. But Richard uses a homemade camera with no shutter um, on the lens and therefore controls the light by putting something in front of the lens, taking it away at a certain interval of time, although it's not too important what that interval is when you're talking about um paper that has an ASA of like three but still this was like a common thing before shutters like this one these were pretty modern inventions and so you would cock the shutter like that and then you would click this button with like usually it has a cable release and you press the button and it and it clicks so it's like but before those were invented, um, there was just put something in front of the lens, take it away. <laughs> and so you were kind of this manual shutter. So that's why a lot of times like those older lenses, especially lenses that were not actually made for photography, which is what Richard uses, um, they don't have shutters on them. And they make super crisp and wonderful and beautiful images. But But yeah, it's more about... Um, all the setting up and keeping things in the right place and everything. So Richard's camera is actually homemade completely and um, it's huge. It's enormous. There's a video by MoMA that really does put this visual into a video very, very well. So I'm not going to try to explain it. If you want to learn more, definitely check out that video. It'll be linked down below. So you might not think of photography necessarily as a form of light and art, but it very much is. You know, you have to use light-sensitive material and you have to, there's other things too. It's not like James Terrell just using light, but it is sort of also literal because you're, you're painting with light and then creating an image that you're just casting onto, uh, projecting onto a light-sensitive material. So, So optics and photographic processes are just another way to use light as a medium. And, and Richard's work in particular is unique not only because 
uh, he built him his camera himself, and he's obviously a master at it. But uh, because he uses paper that was made by Ilford back in the day called Ilfachrome um, or Chivachrome, that's no longer in production. So the beauty of that process is that he can, by understanding and mastering the light and the use of objects and the in the use of that paper, he can draw out certain aspects of a person, um, certain aspects of the color of the paper, and they kind of capture this this energy, especially because of how big they are, that really I haven't seen uh, anything quite like it, and I don't think that there ever was or ever will be. Learning how a lens like this works and learning how to actually use light to paint on light-sensitive material, I don't know, it could be pretty inspiring. That was what was so inspiring to me about it when I first started doing film photography because um, it really wasn't even about like the nostalgia of film or anything like that. It really wasn't about that for me. It was really just because I wanted to work with my hands and I sort of wanted to sculpt light in a way and I wanted to learn how to do that in a practice. It's really nice, especially if you use photography at all in any way, in any capacity, to understand how light works and how light bounces off things and um, how you use different materials to kind of reflect and diffuse. It's super helpful because everything is photography now nowadays, right? We're so visually focused with social media, with our phones, with the internet and all of that. So the last section of this video is going to be fairly brief um, because I've been talking for a while, but it's practical applications. So I just want to talk very briefly about light in general um, for anybody who's interested in using it in their practice. So now that you have four examples of how to use light and how different artists use light in their works, um, it might be helpful to talk about how light is measured. So light is perceived by our eyes on a spectrum and that that spectrum is measured in kelvins. So daylight ranges from 5,000 to 6,500 um, K or Kelvin. And that changes, of course, with whether it's super overcast or if there's a lot of shade. So you've probably noticed at the hardware store or wherever, when you go to buy a light bulb, um, you are affronted by all these options of what temperature uh, you want your light bulb to be. And so a thousand Kelvin is kind of a, a, the lowest number on this scale and it's the warmest. So it's the most orange. And then 2000, 3000, 4000, as it goes up um, to 10,000, 10,000 being the coolest. So it gets more blue uh, with 5000 being daylight, which is the most neutral. Um, 1000 and 2000, like all the way up to, I would say like 3000, 3500 is kind of the tungsten scale. So when you see things like film that's tungsten balanced, that's what they're talking about. It's sort of bluish film that balances out that tungsten. Uh, different temperatures of light actually have different effects on us psychologically. The warmer tungsten, um, even incandescent lights, actually can evoke a sense of peace, a sense of warmth, even a sense of heat internally. Um, it can evoke uh, this kind of feeling that you have when you're sitting by a fire, that kind of incandescent infrared light that radiates, comes off the radiation of the fire, um, that is what is evoked with some sort of warmer light. When it comes to cooler light, um, it can be really harsh. That's kind of more along the scale of 
what's in office buildings, what's in, you know, fluorescent bulbs, they tend to be a little bit cooler. So those can be a little bit um, disorienting and not, not great for our psychological state. A lot of the LED lights that are around these days that uh, save energy, the downside is that, you know, of course, we've all heard of blue light. We wear blue light blocking glasses for this reason. It really does affect our brain and our circadian rhythm um, because, again, light is super powerful. And so it has the ability to either calm us down or wake us up, even if it's false. That's another interesting uh, concept to dive into is false light. Like, you could go deep with that. So there are a lot of different materials that you could use to diffuse light, to block light, to reflect light to varying degrees. Um, in photography and film, like I said, it's all about using these materials and sculpting light with various shapes of umbrellas, light sources um, with various materials covering them. There's stuff called cine, cine, what is it called? Is it cinefoil where you basically just have this like thick, light, tight aluminum foil that you put around lights to shape it in different ways. Um, there is all kinds of stuff to deal with light because that's what film and the film industry basically is based on. Um, there's things called gels to balance light that are too warm or too cool, which is kind of what I was discussing earlier with the the daylight balance versus the um, tungsten balance. You can also do that like on the actual light. So you have layers of light that can be incorporated into each shot. And there's so many things, so many other things that we could talk about in this video, but I don't want it to be a 30 minute long video. So I'm going to stop there and just Again, hopefully give you a little taster into the world of light as an element, as a material that you can use in art, um, as just a concept. And I heard multiple artists refer to this word of thingness. I just wanted to kind of highlight the thingness of light. So thank you so much for watching this video. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe to the channel and follow us on Instagram. Everything will link, be linked down below. There will be a transcript to the audio for this episode as usual that will be up on the blog anint.rest. Um, there will also be an audio version of this on the podcast called an interest radio. Again, everything will be linked down below. I feel like these outros are just always so long. So I'm going to cut it there and just say, uh, yeah, I appreciate you guys watching the videos and it's been so fun so far. And yeah, I'm just excited to keep going. So ciao. I'll see you next time.